Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. We've got a new episode for you today and we're excited that you made it here. Before we get going, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and then subscribe to the newsletter. Get some new updates from us, some exclusive content, things that nobody else has. And oh, one more thing. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Founder Hour podcast. I am your co-host, Pat. And I'm Posh. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down with Gabby Dawkin. Uh, she's uh, an entrepreneur. She's a chef. She's an author, a podcaster, you name it. We're excited uh, to, to learn more about your story and, and kind of talk about what, you're, what you've been up to uh, lately. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so... Um, like we always do, we we like to sort of start from the very beginning, kind of get a back background story of of you. Um, so, which kind of like kind of leads up to your sort of entrepreneurial journey and and what you're up to today. So, um, kind of going back, tell us a little bit about you know you growing up. What kind of stuff were you into? What kind of kid were you? Yeah. So I, um, well, a I was a very picky eater growing up. So it's a shock and a wonder to everyone that I'm in the food world now. <laughs> Um, but I was kind of a goody two shoes growing up. I was mostly a straight A student. I played tennis and I swam every day after school. My parents are both incredibly active. So like they put us in a ton of after school activities. Um, I didn't get into a ton of trouble. Like I like to push the boundaries once I got a little bit older, but I didn't do anything that would be like dangerous to myself. Um, but yeah, I was just like, you know. I just, and I like to eat food. <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I was picky, yeah. but I loved cookies and I love pastas and um, I liked getting good grades and all that kind of stuff. So that's all, that's all. I mean, I think that's how it started. <laughs> Did you grow up in LA? No, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. So we lived in Arizona from when I was five until I graduated high school. I was born in Chicago. Um, and then after I graduated high school, a lot of my friends stayed local and went to U of A or ASU. And I had decided I wanted to go out and try something new. And I moved to California. But to start, I was up in the Bay Area. I went to college at St. Mary's, which is in the East Bay, um, and played tennis up there. And then eventually made my way down to LA after college. Mm. And and like so many kids, like, um, I don't know for you, but like, you know, college is something that is sort of a normality, like you just, it's part of the process, right? Like you go to high school, and then you go to college, and then you f- try to find a good job. Was that the case for you? Or did you have a very specific, you know, vision of college and what you wanted to get out of it? And, and what sort of path you wanted to go down? Not really. Like when I started college, I was pre-med uh, for the first year and a half until I got to some chem- some my second chemistry class and I started like failing tests because I was just like, oh my God, I don't care about this at all. Um, and it was then when I was like, I called my dad, my, my family's in the medical world, they're doctors and such. And I was like, dad, I don't think I'm going to do this. And he was like, okay, cool, figure out what you want to do. So then I started thinking a little bit more about what I could major in to give me a leg up once I graduated. Um, And I was at a small liberal liberal arts school and I decided to do the business track because I could at least apply that to whatever I was going to go into. Um, 
So I would say college was just like a formality. Like I, I want, I knew I wanted to go. I played tennis through college, which was really cool. It's how I met my husband. We did, you know, he was on the men's tennis team. Um, and I made incredible friends, but I had no idea what college would lead me to. Like I, I got a job in the fashion industry in marketing and PR after college. Like I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> when did you really kind of figure out what you enjoyed? You know, obviously you enjoyed tennis, but uh, did you think about going professional at all? Or was it just more so one of those hobbies that you had? Yeah, I mean, I was good, but I wasn't that good. <laughs> I would never have made any sort of money or career for myself. But what tennis did teach me is before the men's matches or before the women's matches, I always had everyone over to my apartment and I would cook dinner. And I only knew how to make one thing. I could make chicken parm. And I would cook that multiple times a week before big matches. We'd carb load. We have, And I just loved having people around my table. And I loved watching the conversations happen. And the teamwork that was like we were developing all these bonds and stuff. And I, I attribute that to why I got into culinary school after college. Because after college, I got a job. This is back in 2008. I had the job for six months. The whole company ended up folding six months after I started when like things went south back then. Um, and instead of going to get another job, I was still young. I was 21 at the time. And I decided, you know, like I want to go to culinary school just to learn how to cook better for myself and for my boyfriend. And and I just decided to go on a whim. I had no intention of going into the food world afterwards, but it was in culinary school where my teacher like really pushed me to try new things and get outside of the comfort zone. And I ended up getting a job as a private chef and starting my website, What's Gabby Cooking, at the exact same time I started. And then it very, very slowly snowballed. How did you originally get into like cooking? Was it something, um, I know you mentioned like as a kid, you liked obviously eating, um, but was it something that you saw more so as like a, an, an art where you were like going to actually, you know, cook or, or was it more so, um, you know, in college th in those days where you just started cooking and you're like, Hey, I'm pretty good at this and people like what I'm making. So why not? Why not? Yeah, well, I started watching like the Food Network back in its heyday when I was in high school. I would come home from school and watch like Rachel Ray and Tyler Florence. I could recite everyone's openers. I was obsessed. Um, but it was, I think it was the act of feeding people that really got me invested into it. Like I just love bringing that joy into people's lives. And I think that's why I liked being a private chef so much is because I got to see my work be consumed basically every night and like watch this family enjoy my food or this party go swimmingly or whatever it was. Um, but I started getting interested in food in high school. And I think I was interested in it then because I come from a family. My mom is a very, very picky eater. She just makes like noodles and chicken. We never had steak or fish or anything like that in our home. So it was very interesting to me to watch these people cook other things on TV that I had never experienced. And like, I started learning about different types of cuisine. And then my family, we did quite a bit of traveling. So then I got to experience food in other cultures and watch other people cook their food and learn about how they eat and their different traditions. And that was all very interesting to me um, as a, as a teenager. And, and you mentioned studying business. Um, like most business people was, was your like, vision after to, to actually go to like work in Wall Street, like investment banking or some something in finance? Or did you have this sort of entrepreneurial bug or mindset that, you know, um, culinary school aside, like at some point, I want to run my own business and, and, and go about it that way? 
Yeah, I think when I got when I had that job, and I, I never wanted to do Wall Street or anything like that. Like I love numbers. I actually never even it never crossed my mind to go into a financial field because I think I would have been really good at it. Um, I wanted to do the marketing and PR and the creative part of business, and so I knew that was like those were the directions I went in college. Um, but I, after I had that one job for six months and I hated my boss, uh, there were a couple really like awkward, there were just some weird things that happened. And I was like, mm, I don't want to work for anyone else. Like, I want to see if I can make this on my own. And at the time I was young, I had no idea what I was doing. And thankfully it worked out, but it was very slow for me to like get my feet under me and figure out how to make money and make this work. And I was like scrapping together multiple jobs at you know, for the first couple of years to make it work. Um, but now I love it. <laughs> so after you graduated culinary school, you said you also had the website. What were you really posting about? I mean, what was the content? Yeah, it was, it was rough. <laughs> the content was really ugly. Um, back in like 2008, 2009, I was just blogging for fun. Like I had no intention behind what I was doing. I was just cooking whatever I was cooking for my clients or my boyfriend slash husband and posting it on the blog, really ugly photos, poor, poorly written recipes, poorly written blog posts. Like it was just, it was like a hobby for me. And I just wanted to prove to everyone back home that I learned how to eat mushrooms or make fish or whatever it was. Um, and that was it for the first couple of years. It was very much just like an online journal until I started reading. Um, my godmother introduced me to the pioneer woman who's now a dear friend of mine. And I would read her religiously. And she had made this entire career out of her blog. She had cookbooks and novels and all these different things. She was getting a Food Network show. And I was like, oh, wow, like if you are really smart about what you post, Gabby, you could turn this into something. So that's when I started really getting serious about what kind of content I was putting out there and what my brand was. And I hired a consultant who is, she had been a mentor to me and we sat down for like weeks on end to talk about what we thought, what Scotty cooking was and who I, who I am and who, what I stood for. And she came back to me a couple weeks later and she was like, Oh, you're the California girl. Like, obviously everything's approachable. It's always sunny. Like, and California is a, is, is a state of mind. It's not a place. And I was like, well, obviously. And she's like, no, that's your brand, Gabby. And I was like, oh. And it was in that moment when everything really clicked because I then knew there was this overarching theme to everything I was creating, all content on all platforms that needed to funnel back to this messaging. And that's when things really changed for me. And, and talk to us a little bit about those days when it came to sort of the, the blogging space. Um, cause, cause this is like around the time when, when like Twitter is first starting to really gain traction and, and Instagram hadn't even started yet. And Facebook was like still pretty early on. So early like social media days, but as far as blogging goes, I can imagine there was like these things like, you know, like Blogspot and Tumblr and like WordPress. So how did you go about it? Like, was it a popular space or, or did you have some, you know, a lot of like learnings to like figure it out yourself instead of sort of looking at examples. Yeah, there was, there weren't a ton of examples. I mean, like I started the blog, I wasn't a first adopter of the blog or Twitter or anything like that, but I was fairly early. I would say 2009 might've been my first, late 2009 was my first blog post and I was on Blogspot. I'm very lucky that Thomas, my long, whatever, we're married now, but my boyfriend at the time um, was very tech savvy. So he could help me 
put the blog spot together. I remember it was like all black with neon font because I thought that was cool. And I was like, and now I look back Blogs- on like those way back time machines and I'm like, what was I thinking? Um, Blogspot but- was a really cool platform. Like you got to like really pimp out your, your, your blog. <laughs> you did. I had like, I had someone animate uh, like what they thought, like a picture of me. And that was like my header. It was, I mean, it was so <laughs> back in the day, but that it was so cool because food blogging specifically was an incredible community. And we would all go on Twitter throughout the day and talk. And I just remember some of the first people I ever met through food blogging were Twitter friends. And then when we would have these like, con- uh, what were they? I can't remember the name conferences. I'm like, we haven't seen humans in so long. I forget what these things are called. (laughs) When we had a conference, we'd all go and it felt like I was seeing old friends that I had never met before in real life, but we had been friends on Twitter for six, 12, 18 months, whatever it was. And it was really an incredibly supportive community. People would share each other's blog posts and comment on each other's blogs and it's interesting to see how things have changed. I still think it's a fairly supportive community, but um Back then, anything went like everybody was friends with everybody. It was back when you were in like preschool and like you just wanted everyone to like you. <laughs> and what were you really seeing when you're doing these blogs? You know, you're putting these pictures and recipes. Did you slowly, after the two years of kind of that rough time that you talk about, did you see more excitement? Did you see growth in your audience? I mean, what were the things that you started realizing about, you know, your work? Um, yeah, I think probably right after I started focusing on branding, this was actually around the same time Snapchat started. Um, and I was an early adopter of Snapchat and I started making my recipes every Friday at noon. I'd call them a snap episode. We had like an intro song and an outro song. And it was like a very loose idea of a, my own, my own show that I could produce. Um, by this time I had applied to be on next food network star multiple times and never made the cut. And I was like, F that I'll do it myself. Um, but what I saw in those early days are people were actually making my recipes and people were sending me photos of my recipes in their kitchens or asking me questions 45 minutes after I'd finished a Snapchat about, about something they wanted to substitute or whatever. And it was then where I was like, holy, like mind blown, like people are actually making these. And that was around the same time that things started to really change for me because I started then giving more information to people for free and give like making sure they had everything they possibly could need to make this recipe and make be a success in their home. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but you mentioned like launching the blog in like 2009. And I think like, the, you know, the whole Snapchat wave, what was it like early 2012 ish, 13 ish, where it started? Like, what were you doing in between the time, even at that time and beyond, like to, to sort of make money and, and survive while you're, while you're, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but like, uh, mm-hmm. did you have like another job at the time or, or was yeah. it the time? I had been a private chef. So I, uh, if let's say the whole culinary career started end of 2009, I was a private chef from 2009 until 2012. Um, I cooked for two families who are both incredibly special families to me still to this day. Um, and I did the blog and slow, like slowly the blog would make like $27 off of ads a month, or I would get like a $200 sponsored post. And it was so exciting to me to watch this. And as that slowly picked up steam and became semi comparable to what I was making through private chefing, that's when I was like, okay, I could, I can 
you know, step away from private chefing right now and give this a try. I'm still young. I'm still like nimble. Like if I need to go back, I can do that. But if I don't try this right now, I'll never know. Um, I was also very frugal, you know, saving money when I was a private chef. So I had some cushion to fall back on because the first year and a half of blogging full time was like very touch and go. I'm curious. I had never heard of this. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, that you're a private chef for two families. How does that work? I mean, is that something that was common or is common now where, you know, you know, former culinary students turned chefs would cook for families? I mean, what was that like? Yeah, so I didn't do them at the same time. I cooked for one family of six in Malibu for the first year and a half, two years. Um, and for them, I would go over once the kids were done with school, make a snack, make dinner, serve dinner. It would be this huge spread. There are six people. Everyone had different dietary restrictions and whatnot. So I would make like seven to 10 things a night. Um, that way there'd be leftovers for them to put in the kids' lunches for school the next day. Um And I actually think that's one of the reasons that I have been able to do like so much, so much menu development and all that kind of stuff in my cookbooks because of that training. Um, The other family I cooked for was, it was just, um, there was just two of them, a girlfriend, boyfriend at the time who are now married with three children, but I would go over there and it would be breakfast, lunch. I'd cook dinner, put it in the fridge, bounce, and then they'd heat up dinner on their own. Like they had a huge staff and everything. So dinner was their time to kind of be alone and not have everyone in their home and all that kind of stuff. Um, so two very different jobs, but yes, I think people, a lot of people go to culinary school to try and get jobs in the private chef world if they don't want to go the restaurant route, because they're very, um, they're super different in terms of like restaurants, just a lot harder on your body. (laughs) So, 2012 comes around, you're no longer doing this, you take the leap of faith, what happens? Um, I like check my bank account every morning to make sure I'm not broke for six months. <laughs> um, uh, and that was when my first cookbook came out. So I wrote a book, maybe it came out in, no, it came out in 2012, Absolutely Avocados, which was very much, um, I pitched it as a joke. I didn't think it would actually get picked up and it did. Um, so I had my first book that was coming out. I had to promote it. I had to hustle. I learned all these things about the publishing industry that I didn't know about going into it. So it was at a huge educational moment in my career. Um, and I was hustling hard to get work, like to get sponsored content on the blog. And I took some jobs that I probably shouldn't have taken with brands that are that are great, but like, they're just not things I would actually use today, or as a private chef and someone who knows how to make their own french fries, I probably wouldn't buy prepackaged french fries and like tell everyone to use them. But I was young, and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was an awesome learning experience for me to see that, oh, you're going to get called out if you do something that your audience knows isn't on brand for you. Um, So that's what, you know, the first couple, I would say the first two years of me going full time, what Scobby cooking looked like. I learned very quickly what was on and off brand. And at the the same time when I hired my consultant to help me develop the what's Scobby cooking ethos. And so for you, like when you started the blog and then sort of migrated or, or, or over to like social media as it was picking up steam, like Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter, like in those early days, did you, did you make like a really concerted effort of like building out an audience that you were able to sort of 
you know, like maybe like an email newsletter or something along those lines where you sort of had the audience or was it just your brand and people knew who you were? So once you started, you know, uh, being active on like Instagram, people just followed you or did you have more of like this strategy? Um, I wish I had a strategy. I didn't actually pay any attention to building my email list until much later, which is such a bummer. Um, but whatever, you live and you learn. So it was more so people would come to the blog and then they would find me on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram. And when Snapchat started taking off, I was getting, you know, 40, 50,000 people watching my stories every day. And then Instagram, you know, and then my Instagram following was always larger than my Snapchat. So like as Instagram took over and introduced stories and IGTV, and I just funneled everyone over to Instagram and stopped doing Snapchat because I was just producing duplicate content in two different places. And I didn't think it was the best use of my time. Um, but no, there was no back then there was no strategy for getting people to follow on social media, which was um, very lucky that I did it. And in, in this space of like on Instagram, like where you have so many, uh, you know, influencers of all kinds, whether it's food or beauty uh, or fashion, how were you able to stand out? I mean, what were you doing differently that you believe uh, led to your success? Yeah, a couple things. One, um, I had been practicing being on camera religiously for years. Like I said earlier, I really wanted to be on a Food Network star. So I was I was just doing all sorts of video to get my feet wet and be good in front of the camera, which when we all started blogs back in 2009, 10, 11, everyone that started it was like, oh my gosh, I can do this from behind a computer. I don't need to be a forward facing authority on this. I can just write and take pictures. And so when video started becoming a thing, I was already comfortable doing video, which I think was a huge part of my success because I'm sure you guys have watched some people on social media, like not everyone's great on video and that's totally okay. Um, but when video became a big thing, I felt like I had a leg up there. I also, um, really listen to my audience. Uh, I respond to every message on every single platform myself. I don't have any like assistants or anyone that are helping with that, because I think it's really important that people hear from me when they have questions about a recipe or anything else in general. I just want to cultivate that audience. It's a huge part of my daily job. Um, and then also I invested a couple of years in once I was full-time, what's got me cooking, I invested in photography and food styling. So back, like I told you earlier, my photos, I mean, like I'm a decent food photographer, but the early days it was atrocious. Um, but, you know, a couple of years ago, I invested in, I, put, I, I didn't realize that you could put money back into your business. I just didn't think about that. I thought you tried to save everything. So I hired my two best friends, Matt Armandaris and Adam Pearson, who Matt's a photographer, Adam's a food stylist, and they helped me curate the What's Gotta Be Cooking visual voice on top of the like other part we've already cultivated. Um, so those, I think those three things really helped me stand out from the rest and, you know, really differentiate from all the other food influencers and bloggers and writers and cookbook authors, all that kind of stuff. And and to that point, you know, now we see, obviously, um, like Posh mentioned, like so many people, you know, sort of influencing on, on social media across all these different areas how like if you were starting today you know like would like how, with so much um i don't want to call it noise but like it is sort of noise like just so much out there how do you how do you um 
you know, with, with video and like YouTube already so matured and, and so many content creators out there. And then with Instagram already, and it's like a pay to play platform now, and it's not as organic as it used to be. Maybe, um, how do you, um, how do you just stand, stand, stand apart in, in today's world? Like if yeah. you're just starting off today. I honestly, it's harder. Like it is much harder to start today than it was to start five, 10 years ago. Um, and I think when, and, but I, I still think people should, like, there's always room for more voices and more creatives and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would say you have to know you, you almost don't have the luxury of taking a couple years to figure out your voice. Like I did, like I did, I think you have to know what you stand for pretty much off the bat. And yes, you can evolve into it, but you have to have a point of view of something that's not already being done. And, or you have to tell a story in your own voice that no one else is telling, because that's what's going to make you different. I think that people right now, especially, you know, with Corona and quarantine and all these different things, people are wanting authentic voices. And I know that the word authentic is totally overused, but I think people want someone that they can trust and someone that they can relate to and someone that's not annoying to watch. Um, so I think really having that figured out before you sign up for a new Instagram or start a new blog or whatever it is, is super helpful because that way, like when I had everything to come back to being a California girl, you have that off the bat. And so that gives you a leg up on creating content and video and all that. So you can make your own brand. And what I'm curious about is, you know, you kind of go about being this California girl and your brand is all about that. Were you able to, along the way, you know, for the past, you know, eight years or so now, able to attract people beyond the California girl and the California moms or et cetera? Like, you know, when I look at your, you know, following, I'm sure there are people outside of California and LA or whatever that follow your content. Do you think that, you know, being so specific with your messaging and branding has hurt or helped in any sort of way? Yeah. So actually most of my audience is not in California. I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm in big cities, Boston, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, because I think California for me is more of a state of mind than an actual place. Like we just in, what I mean when I say California girl is like everything's we're just going to make it sunny. Like, yes, it might be pouring rain here in LA, but like, we're still going to have a cheerful attitude about it. We're still going to make incredible food that's colorful and beautiful and that makes you happy. So I don't think um, it's, it's hurt me to say I'm a California girl. I actually think it's better because if you're watching in North Dakota, you can feel like you've got that sunshine. Like I think it's all about make, give, giving yourself that, you know, boost of energy. Did that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'm and when did you feel like this was more than just you being an author, more than just your recipes, and that you could do other things in the space, right? Whether that was products or merchandising or whatever it may be, right? When was that point of realization where you said to yourself, Okay, I obviously have something here, but what more can I do, right? You know, you talk about the pioneer woman, like you obviously want to become that or you want to kind of follow that track. What are the things that you did and how did you get there? Yeah, well, I think I realized, I think I realized this could be bigger when thousands of people were sending me my recipes on a weekly basis. And that's actually the moment when I call, I cold called a bunch of people, William Sonoma, Sir Latab, 
all these different retailers and said, I want to do a product line. Like that's the next thing for what's got to be cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was terrifying because not everybody called me back right away, <laughs> but eventually I found my way and I interviewed with all of them. I cooked for all of them. And that's how I got the what's got to be cooking product line in William Sonoma. And it started with just three SKUs. And now it's, I don't even know. I think it's over 25 different SKUs. Um, what was the second part of that question? How, I mean, it was the how which you answered, but now I'm curious, you know, how did you even get into the product development space? Like, is that something that you always envisioned that you would be part of, or is that something that came more so from a need uh, perspective that while you were cooking, you're like, you know, there needs to be a better this, or there needs to be a better that, or did you just want to develop the brand even further? Um, I wanted to develop the brand any further. Like I, when I saw people cooking my recipes, I'm like, how cool would it be if they could cook my recipes with my products? Like that would be awesome. You know why? Like there's so many olive oils in the world. Why can't they be using my olive oil or they're instead of a taco seasoning from Safeway, they could be using my taco seasoning. Um, so that's how the product line came to be. I had no experience in developing products, but I found my, and I know I didn't want to create them on my own. Like actually my management team really pushed me to create, to create it on my own and do the whole, like I was going to find the people to produce it and we would figure out how to do distribution and customer service and everything in house. And I was adamant about not doing all that because that's not what I'm good at. Like that's not my specialty. And I think that's, one thing I've learned through doing what's got me cooking for all these years is you have to do, you have to do, play to your superpower. And my superpower was not going to be figuring out how to get this can of spices to Kansas city. Um, so that's when I picked a partner, William Sonoma, because they have incredible products. I know they put like the best quality in all their products. And it's been a really fun educational process for me to go through everything from development to packaging to distribution, all the promotion of it, marketing, everything like that, um, with a company who's so, you know, experienced and good at their jobs. Going back to the content creation aspect, and I include like writing a cookbook in that sort of creating something um, process. Uh, it's you know, it's oftentimes a balance uh, for for many content creators that is like, what are people not doing? What's missing? And like, what do I just genuinely want to put out there because I want to do it. For myself and I, I hopefully people care um how do you go about balancing that is it like heavily over like on one or, or the other or is it like a, a a mix of the the two i think it's a mix of the two um i i think there are a lot i mean there listen there's so many people in cre- creating incredible content out there but what i like to do is listen to what my audience is looking for. I know they want simple dinner ideas to get on the table really quickly. I know they want fun appetizers, really good cocktails, bowls, stuff like that. And so I take all of that along with whatever's inspiring me, whether it's a trip or the farmer's market or something I see on my best friend's Instagram while she was on a vacation or something like that. Um, And then put my own spin on it. I think and credit where credits do. Like, I think it's really important to credit your inspiration sources and all that kind of stuff. Like it's a huge part of creating content. Um, but that's kind of how I think about it. It's interesting to differentiate the content you create for online and social, as opposed to the cookbook, because the content you put on your blog or your website or your Instagram, you can do very quickly, but the stuff in your book is a two year process. Like we started writing my new cookbook, the one that just came out two years ago. And so you kind of have to really think ahead, um, which is also another reason why I don't like doing very trendy food. Like 
everyone like cupcakes were a big thing a hundred years ago and like kale chips. And I listen, I love all that kind of stuff, but I, I don't think it has legs forever. And I'd rather do something that's going to be in people's kitchens further. Like if they're going to spend $26 on a cookbook, I want them to use it for 56 years. Like it's not, that's not, no, it's not, that's a lot of money to some person. So I think it's important to create content that has legs forever. Yeah, for sure. And Gabby, speaking of the like just cookbook industry, like, you know, I, I really, I don't know much about it, but what is it, what does it look like? I mean, I know you like have done three cookbooks now, so you obviously know a lot, but before this whole coronavirus quarantine, I didn't think a lot of people were cooking at home, frankly. Uh, yeah. Now a lot of people are cooking at home, right? So kind of guide us through like before coronavirus and before you know, people were cooking at home all this, all this time. What was the industry like and what is it like now? Yeah. So the cookbook industry is interesting. I mean, I don't know what a regular, but like a novel, what that industry looks like, but for books, you, the process is you need an idea, you need an agent An agent helps you flesh out your idea. You write a proposal. It can be anywhere from like two to 20 pages. It's a lot of work. I remember my last two, my last proposal for my second book, I wrote it and my agent was like, this is trash. Do it again. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then that proposal gets shopped around to every different publisher. And then if you're lucky, your book goes to auction and all the publishers bid on it within a 24 to 48 hour process. And you have to make a decision right then and there who you're going to go with. Like you've had conversations with all these different editors. Um, and then you get to work. You, t- you pick the publisher that has either the best price or the most creative control, or you vibe with the editor the most. Um, I fortunately got to pick someone who did all three. Um, and then you go to work and it takes probably about six to 12 months to write the book, to develop the recipes and shoot it. Um, for us, we did this last book in two stages. So like I wrote half the recipes, we shot them. I wrote the other half of the recipes, we shot them. Um, and then it gets sent off to copy editors and your designer, they format it all together. It comes over in a book and you do edits back and forth, back and forth. And then it goes to printing. You see it six months later. Um, and then and then comes the hardest part. Like that's not even the hard part is writing the book. The hardest part is marketing the book and getting the word out and have like enticing people to spend $25 on a cookbook when there are recipes for free online. Um, so that's kind of what the industry looks like. I, I'm very curious actually, you know, how many publishers make money on their books? Like I think every publisher's got one or two authors who really go gangbusters, Ree from Pioneer Woman, Deb from Smitten Kitchen, I'm sure are too. Like when they do a book, it's going to, their sales are going to be through the roof and that can afford the publisher to take risks on smaller people um, that maybe don't have that built-in audience that's going to buy whatever they're selling. Um, but I'm always so curious about, you know, is or who's making money? Like I'm just, it's not, books are right. not... You, you don't do a book to you're not going to be rich writing a book like unless you're jk rowling probably like i can assume i can assume it's probably like the 80 20 rule kind of like in venture capital where like it, you know 20 percent of, of your investments cover like maybe even 10 percent of your investments cover for like 90 percent of of your earnings it's probably the same for them they're taking you know big bets on on uh promising you know writers authors and and if two of them out of 10 hit then 
usually covers for the rest. Yeah, I think you're totally right. But Gabi, just to kind of take it further, like why a cookbook? I mean, like why couldn't you just publish it online? I get the, you know, making money and reaching other people, et cetera. But don't you think there's more access to your work by having it online versus having it in a book? Um, yes and no. Like I know my, the, predominantly my audience is online, but I know there are a lot of people. I feel very fortunate that my audience is either people of similar age to me, like 25 to 40 is like my sweet spot. But then I've got a huge audience who's like a little bit older than that, kind of my mom's age. And then older than that, who are like my grandma's age. And they all look at me like either I'm their friend, I'm their daughter, or I'm their granddaughter. And those p- people in the two older, dem- in the older brackets, they're not on blogs or Instagram all day. So, and they're the ones who have more disposable income. So they're the ones who want a cookbook and they're the ones who are going to come stand in line and meet me and take a picture at a book signing or something like that. So I also think books are an incredible marketing tool. Like when my second, my second book came out two years ago, we did the today show and I can't even remember like all these different TV shows that I would probably not have gotten if I was just online. Like people like to promote, something you can hold and have in your kitchen right. and all that. So I think that it opens you up to a different audience. And and also I think people who are consuming my content online love to support outside of that content. Like I know people will, will buy my seasonings. They're the same price as all the other seasonings out there, but they're going to buy mine because they, they like my content and they want to support me. Right. During this time, I've seen a lot of people follow accounts like Bon Appetit, right? Which I think does a really good job of having a very big audience and people are visual, right? Like obviously, you know, people follow you and your work because they're visual consumers. They like seeing like beautiful things and then trying to cook it. How have you been able to leverage this time where a lot of people are at home, a lot of people are cooking and not going out? Has has it been something that's been almost beneficial to you in terms of your audience's growth? Yeah, our traffic is out of control right now. <laughs> it's crazy. When quarantine hit, we pivoted very quickly for the first couple of weeks to give content that was really useful for people. Here's how to stock your pantry. Here are the 10 things to do with frozen mm-hmm. chicken thighs, chicken breasts, beans, all these different things. Um, because we're still a small company and we don't have dozens of employees, we can pivot very quickly. Um, we launched the What's Gotta Be Cooking Culinary School which we've been talking about for years, but have never done it. We basically just dug out my culinary school binders and started creating video content so people could learn how to chop an onion and carrots and all these different things. Because before this, I think a lot of people loved following me and loved cooking my recipes, but sometimes they didn't cook like they went out for dinner and now everyone's cooking. And so to be able to create those resources for people was huge for me because now they're coming to me for everything. Like they, I'm already a trusted resource and now they're learning to cook at home during quarantine. So like they might as well come use my content to do Mm so. Right. And, and uh, you started a podcast for like cooking in quarantine, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Like, was this your first podcast? Like, was it, was it a challenge for you? Like becoming a podcaster too, or, or was it like, you know, that content creator gene in you that, you know, you were sort of natural at it. It's so much work. <laughs> so props to you guys. Um, so my my management company, I'm with uh, DBA, who owns Dear Media, um, which is the podcast arm of Digital Brand Architects. Um, they came to me with the idea and they were like, hey, 
if there's ever a time to start a food podcast, because I think food is tough to translate into podcast space. Like it's very visual. You want to see it. However, the idea we came up with was what's got to be cooking in quarantine, which is basically just crowdsourcing questions and answering them. What do you do with X, Y, and Z? How do you substitute X for Y? And so we just did like a 1-800- like, you know, remember like 1-800-Jenny, like the like Jenny Craig commercials back in the day? We did one of those and we got hundreds of calls like within the first couple days. I mean, I still haven't gotten through all the questions from the first week when we announced, but we are able to have a handful of questions on every podcast and answer them. And it's so cool that one person's question actually answers questions for so many other humans. So that was the first like five or six weeks of the podcast. And now we're slowly transitioning into having guests on once a week. I had my mom on last week to talk about food noise and body shaming and like how there's so much of that in today's world, especially with like the, like the diet industry and culture and all that with that we live in. Um, So we're going to start branching out and doing a couple more guests every month, but it's been, it's, it's so much work to like, organize all the files and do all the research and but and also at the end of every podcast I feature a really cool small company that people can support so they can order tortillas or chips or spices or whatever it is online rather than going and waiting in line at a grocery store so all of that it, it's a cute 15 minute episode but it's hours that goes into the prep for each one. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize yeah. how much work goes um as a chef I'm curious um you know, you mentioned drawing a lot of uh, inspiration from your audience and and kind of get, getting getting their feedback and sort of creating content that they want to see. But what are some other sources of inspiration for you? You know, I know we, you know we talk, we've talked to a lot of chefs, and you know some might be inspired by music or pop culture or just like you know books, um, information. So I guess for you, like, do you have any other source of inspiration that you like turning to, or is just like life in general the inspiration for you? Yeah. So we pre-quarantine did quite a bit of travel. Like we grew up traveling. My parents didn't spend money on fancy cars or anything like that. We spent our money on going on cool vacations. Like my mom grew up abroad for a lot of her life. Um, My dad did not. So when they, when it was just the two of them, they traveled the world. So my mom could show my dad all these incredible cultures. And it was so fun for them to do that together. It was really important for them to do that with us once we were old enough to like, you know, sit at a table and be, you know, not monsters. Um, and so we did that a lot. And for the first, you know, five or six years of us traveling, I was very picky and I didn't get to eat any of the food we had when we went to Turkey or Scotland. I just wanted like French fries. Um, and so since we've been able to repeat some of those trips and I've been able to go with my husband and do these cool things too, I feel like that comes back for inspiration for me. Like I love bringing different sort of cuisines and people's stories into my kitchen and being able to tell those stories on my platform. I'm really uh, curious about your thoughts on and from what your observations have been in the past you know, few months, but also you know, prior to that. Where do you see the future of the food industry going, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of transitioning to obviously cooking at home, a lot of delivery and pickup and less of sitting at a restaurant, obviously. And even when I think things reopen eventually, I think we're going to be seeing less of that. We've seen grocery delivery, um, you know, Instacart and Amazon have been just, you know, skyrocketing. What 
what do you see as the future? What's coming? What do people not know about yet? Or something that's really, really small or just in LA that the world hasn't really seen yet? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if there's anything like, I'm sure there are, there are incredible companies that are popping up every day that are going to like end up taking over the world, I'm sure. But I think as far as the food world in general goes, people who we're going to, we're going to go back to the old days. Like people are going to want to entertain more at home because it's safer, at least for the next couple of years. Like I think that being able to gather eight, 10, 12 of your friends or family to come over and cook for them is going to really have a resurgence, which is great for people like me who like to entertain um, and want to, you know, have people over once it's safe again. But I think um, like I'm, I'm the biggest supporter of restaurants and we've been ordering in from our favorite local restaurants here in LA once or twice a week to try and support them. But I'm, I'm unsure of how it's going to look. I know actually in Long Beach, I was talking to my best friend the other day. um, They shut down a bunch of roads recently and they're, creating all those like little outside like parklets outside of each restaurant. And they're getting rid of like the cars basically on these streets period forever. And they're going to have these little parklets outside of every restaurant. So they could at least have other people eating outside to create more business for the restaurants. But I still don't think anyone's going to be comfortable walking into a fully, you know, booked restaurant on a crowded on a Friday night for a while, like until we have a vaccine. So it'll be really interesting to see where the food world goes um, over the next 18 months. But I also think that means that it's ripe for the creative people out there to do cool new things. Like there's going to be a lot of, um, fun inventions that come out of this time. I think. How does that shift what you're doing? Like how does this time period and cooking at home and entertaining more and all the new innovations and creativity that's going to be kind of arising, how does that affect you and your business? And do you think we'll be seeing a lot more people following food bloggers like yourself as opposed to the bigger brands and focusing more on, you know, what's Gabby cooking? Or like we had, you know, Catherine McCord on a few months ago who has kind of her own, you know, brand and her own cookbooks, right? And do you think we're going to be seeing more of those types of, you know, companies as opposed to, you know, the big fast food chains providing food for people? I do. Catherine's one of my best friends. I love her. Um, I'm so, I listen to your guys' podcast with her. She's the best. Um, Yeah, I do. I do think that's, I think it's going to be, well, I mean, as far as like me or Bon App or stuff like that, like I think all that's still, that's not going anywhere. Like I think it's up to consumers to figure out whose voice it is you want to follow. Like Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, all the Meredith properties, like they're, they're not going anywhere. Condonas, like that's fine. I think they're going to have to pivot though, because people are just not going to be spending as much money. You know, like if we're really heading into like a depression after this or a reset, whatever you want to call it, like people are going to have to pivot. And I think it's easier for companies like me or one potato, we licious Catherine's companies to do that because we're small and we're nimble and we're used to it. We wear like 47 hats, on a different, on a daily basis. Um, but I, I also don't, I think that some of the big companies are too big to fail. Like they'll figure out a way to make it work too. It might, it, it just might take them a little bit longer. 
Yeah, we've and and we've had several chefs on the show. We've had this sort of discussion with, um, which I think is really interesting. Like we've had like Chef Tim Hollingsworth of Odium. We've had Chef Johnny of Helen Rays, and like a bunch of other folks. And 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 it's this sort of shift that we've seen in the last, I would say, like ten years, where you know the chef went from being sort of the the person in the kitchen to the person that is sort of the face of the brand, like the chef turned celebrity. And we see it with these like cooking shows and all this kind of stuff too which is growing. So I, I can imagine like, you know, we'll be in a world where that will be, it, it'll pretty much be like a chef led concept of, of sorts of like across the board, like as opposed to the brand name, it's like the, the, sh- it's like the person. chef is the, yeah, the person, um, the face of the brand. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see. I agree with you. And I also think that's why, I mean, it's, it's, a great opportunity for people who have a voice and a message to share, because if that's why brands like big brands, Pepperidge Farms, Aperol, all the alcohol brands, they're finding people that are chefs or influencers, even though I hate that word, we need to find a new word for the word influencers. But you know what I mean? People that have an audience, that too. Um, Like I'll, I'll take anything at this point. (laughs) Um, that's why these brands are hiring these people because these people come with an audience who's going to put their money behind what that person says. So I think to your point, it's going to be a little bit more individual. Where do you see yourself in the next you know, couple of years, like personally and professionally? What are some of the things that you're excited to work on and put out there or just anything, I guess? What, what's, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, we've been approached to do a couple different shows. So I would love to see if that goes anywhere. Um, there was a very long period of time where I didn't want to do an additional cooking show, but I think, um, I think there, we have some really fun ideas to do it and make it a little bit different. So I think I'm back on that train now. Um, I would love to start a family. So that would be cool to bring that into our lives and to also use that for inspiration for content creation. Like I've cooked for kids before when I was a private chef, but never my own. So I think that would open up a lot of new doors. For example, Catherine, when she started her smoothie project and stuff like that, like thought that's because of her kid. So I, it'll be interesting to see what that, what kind of inspiration that brings. Um, But personally, like we're, we're staying in LA. Like we love, we love, our lives here. Um, I would love to travel again. Who knows when that's going to happen? Like we canceled all of our trips this year, but um, one day we'll get back out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us on a, this lovely Saturday uh, morning. Uh, and I'm sure that our audience is going to really enjoy hearing about your journey and almost that unconventional path of, you know, not being a doctor, not even being perhaps a chef at a restaurant, but using your business knowledge and your, uh, you know, culinary knowledge to actually put out something new to the world. And I really think folks like yourself and Catherine and a lot of others are going to be the new wave of chefs and, you know, foodpreneurs, for lack of a better term, who are, you know, really changing the environment of food and hospitality. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, where it all goes and how, you know, folks like you guys adapt uh, in, the, in the coming days and months and years. So uh, thank you again. And we hope to keep in touch with you and, you know, see what you're working on in any way we can support you. We're more than happy to do so. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks Gabby.